Romans chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to look at Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along there with me. And before we do, let's again go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given your word and that you have exalted your word above all your name. And we thank you that it's by this word that we are made wise unto salvation. We thank you, our God, that it is by your holy inspired scripture that the Lord Jesus is formed in us by faith. We pray, our God, that you would accomplish all your purposes this morning. We pray that you would grant humbling grace and invigorating grace and reviving grace this morning. We pray that you would transform our minds and hearts. We pray that you would give us a clear sight of Christ. We pray that you would make us to feel our need for him. We pray that you would be at work in every mind and heart in this place this morning, young and old, rich and poor. We pray, our God, that you would be glorified and that we would be satisfied and transformed into the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking this morning at Romans 12, and we're going to read verses 3 through 8. And there the Apostle Paul picking up now in this applicatory section where he has given that general principle that we are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds now says in verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body, we have many members and The members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1742 and 1743, just a year or two after the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote what has become one of the most profound writings on spiritual pride And how it manifests itself in the subtleties of spiritual pride that's ever been written in the history of the church. And and, and how this came about was that Edwards was almost single-handedly used to usher in the Great Awakening by his preaching in Northampton and elsewhere in New England. And seeing a great manifestation of the outpouring of the Spirit of God, multitudes were converted in towns and villages. Numerous people were converted under the same preaching. People were crying out over their sins. They were crying out over the fact that they understood for the first time, having sat for years and years and years under preaching, understood for the first time that they deserved eternal damnation and that God had had sent a Savior and they saw their need for Christ and they cried out for redemption and marvelous things were happening. And as the Great Awakening cooled, Edwards started to notice that, especially in his own congregation and in Northampton, in the town in which he ministered, that there began to be this pattern of spiritual pride rising up. And in one of his sermons, Edwards says to his congregation something along the lines of, it's remarkable to me that, that Christians and, and you will admit that, that a Christian has not been healed of all sin, 
and yet somehow think that you've been healed of your self-righteousness. Somehow think that there's no more self-righteousness. And so Edwards, in a section in a, uh, a book he wrote called Some Thoughts on uh, Religious Revival, has one section dedicated to spiritual pride. And it's, it's beautiful. And it's very nuanced. And some of the things that Edwards says as he, he starts to unpack this, he says, spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It's the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. And he'll talk about how those who have had the greatest spiritual privileges, those who have been given the greatest knowledge, those who have been given the greatest gifts are oftentimes those who are most liable to fall into spiritual pride. But then Edwards, being the unparalleled pastor that he was, realized that there might be those there who realized they didn't have as many gifts and they hadn't had as many experiences and they might start looking down at those who were being puffed up with pride. And so Edwards says this, and I think this is remarkable. He says, when any person appears in any respect to be noticeably excelling others in his Christian walk, odds are 10 to 1 that it will immediately awaken the jealousy of those about him. And then he unpacks the danger of spiritual pride in those that don't have many gifts and how they start to look at others and they start to think, well, who do they think they are? And they go around and they do this and they talk about this and who do they think they are? And Edward says it's the same sin and it's the same root of the same sin in the same hearts of the same people though they may be manifesting it in different ways. Now, I tell you that this morning because I think the Apostle Paul sets out, at least in verse 3, if not in this entire section, really a warning against spiritual pride, a call to gospel-driven humility, and then a call to gospel-driven humility that manifests itself in service. And notice what Paul does there in verse 3. He starts by saying, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, it's interesting. If you looked at this application section and you started to do sort of a skeleton outline of what Paul's doing, he has given us in in Romans 1 through 11 all the exposition about who Christ is, what he's done, what privileges you have in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 12, he starts to apply that. He first gives us those big overarching principles in verse 1 and 2. Your life is to be a living sacrifice. You are to present yourselves to God holy and acceptable in the totality of your lives. And then he gives us that bigger overarching principle. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then what Paul does in verses three through eight is he speaks to people on the individual level. And then in nine and following, he speaks to the congregation as a congregation And then he speaks to the church in chapter 13 about its relationship to the world. And then in chapter 14, he comes back and he talks about stronger believers to weaker believers. And so Paul is interested in applying the totality of what Jesus has done for us to every situation in which the Christian finds themselves starting with their inner life in their mind, moving out to the congregation, and then out to the world itself. And so you'll notice that here in verse 3 that... Paul is really fixating on the individual believer in the church and what the gospel ought to be doing in them and how it ought to be working out from them. And notice what he says. I say to everyone among you not to think, notice that he's starting with the mind of every believer, not to think 
of himself more highly than he ought to think. And we're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to see the call to gospel humility. And then secondly, we're going to, call, we're going to see the call to gospel service. Well, notice that Paul doesn't begin by saying, you need to make sure that in your mind, you are thinking about yourself properly and that you're not, you don't have too high esteem for yourself and that you, you, don't, you haven't fallen into spiritual pride. Paul starts with himself. Notice what he does. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, Paul does something very interesting. Paul actually leads with himself and he demonstrates in his writing what he's about to say. Paul is the greatest apostle that the world has ever seen. The world was turned upside down through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. He led the greatest church planning movement in the history of mankind. He was singularly used by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations at the fullness of human history. And he has apostolic authority and he could come and he could say, I am an apostle and you need to do what I tell you. He could lead with a heavy hand. He could come and he could, as he says in one of his other letters, I could bring a rod, but he doesn't. Paul says, by the grace given to me, notice, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Paul is appealing to his apostleship. He is calling the people to recognize that he's been set aside as an apostle. But Paul, at the very beginning, doesn't take one step forward without telling you that everything that he is, he is only by the grace of God. That's the way Paul thought about himself. Paul is essentially giving us an inlet into his mind, how he thought about his own ministry. Of all people in the history of the Christian church who could have been puffed up with pride and who knew that he was susceptible to it was the Apostle Paul. How do we know that Paul knew that he was susceptible to spiritual pride? Because in 2 Corinthians, when he is telling us about that pesky thorn in the flesh that nobody knows for sure what it was, and that Satan had given him that messenger of Satan to buffet him. Maybe it was his bad eyesight. Maybe it was some spiritual oppression. Maybe it was the beatings that he endured. Maybe it was the opposition that he endured. Maybe it was his own being imprisoned. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but this is what we know. Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of the revelation. So Paul had been given so much spiritual and theological revelation from Jesus that he realized that it took a special affliction to keep him humble. He understood that even in the state of grace, and this is the most important thing that we can get this morning, even in the state of grace, Paul was susceptible to spiritual pride. The apostle knew his own heart. You know, one of, the, one of the greatest blessings that any Christian can ever experience is to know his or her own heart. And it's one of the rarest things in the whole world. You know, people will see in you and in me all of our faults generally before we ever see them is one of the rarest things in the world. This is why everywhere in the scriptures we're called the self-examination. Examine yourselves, examine yourselves, examine yourselves. And Paul is a man that has obviously done that. Paul knows he is susceptible to spiritual pride. Now, I think it's interesting that only a Christian can be susceptible to spiritual pride. There are sins 
that believers can commit that unbelievers can't commit. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. There's a little book we have in our book table called uh, Christ's Ministry and the Christian by a guy named Gerard Weiss. And Gerard Weiss says this. I want to read this to you because I've never read anything like it. And I think he's right. <clears throat> Weiss says, sins can be found in the believer in the gracious soul, which will never be found outside of the state of grace, nor can they be committed apart from grace. What are these sins? Sins which are exclusively to be found in converted people. He says, we are not thinking here of David's fall. An unbeliever can commit adultery and murder. So we're not thinking of David's fall. He says, we are thinking of Peter's fall, the denial of the Lord Jesus. Judas was indeed capable of betraying the Savior, but he was not capable of denying him. I think that's very powerful. Judas could betray Jesus, but he can't deny someone he doesn't know savingly. But Peter commits a sin that even Judas himself couldn't commit. And believers are always in danger of even falling into sins that only Christians can fall into. And Paul would have us know that spiritual pride is one of those and that the solution, the remedy is to understand that whatever you are and that whatever you have and that whatever you think you are experiencing is only and ever of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He'll say, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory as though you did not receive it? You know, there are those intellectual types who will say, everything I have, I've worked for. And as I thought about that this past week, I thought, well, let's take an example. You have a man who's engaged in the financial world, and and he does very well. And he does well in stocks and in the market. And, and he walks away and he says, everything I've done, I've worked hard for. I've gotten up at 5 a.m. I've gone to bed at, at 1, p.m., 1 a.m. I have gotten very little sleep. Yeah, you'd make no money if you did the former. <laughs> and, and I've done very well for myself. And along comes a Christian who says, everything you have is because God has given it to you. And he says, that's ridiculous. And then you start to unpack that. That man has no control over his own breath, over his own heartbeat. That man has no control over the events that affect the stock market. He has no control over the men that that run other businesses that affect and impact the money that is made and lost in the stock market. That man has no control over anything in the entire world. And when we start to unravel that truth in our own lives, and we start to think about not just on the spiritual level, on the physical level, Every single thing we have, we have by the grace of God. Every single thing we are, we are by the grace of God. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? And notice that Paul puts himself under the same, the same teaching and tells us in verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, there are counterfeits. There are lots of spiritual people who will tell you that humility is just realizing that you're nothing and nobody and have nothing to contribute to anyone. That's not humility. That's actually pride. So in this teaching that Paul sets out, there's There's great nuance. Paul says, on the one hand, don't think more highly than you ought to think. There's an oughtness in how you're to examine the gifts that God's given you, your place in the body, the experiences that you have. 
There's an oughtness. You ought to be able to examine yourself and say, you know, I realize that God has done this in my life. I realize that he's given me this desire. He seems to have given me these gifts. I want to use them for his glory. They all come from him. And, and that helps us to settle into our place in life and in the church and in the world and to be content. There's nothing, and you don't know all the things that irk me, but there's almost nothing that bothers me so much as when I, I meet uh, a young man who wants to go to ministry and he is bent on it, and you know he's going to do it. He's going to make it through seminary. He'll probably get C's and B minuses, which is okay. And he is bent on getting there, but he has absolutely no gifts whatsoever. And everything in me wants to say, you can be anything you want to be is a lie. <laughs> and God gives people gifts. And he, he puts them in the church. And the church is to recognize those gifts. And, and we're to be honest with ourselves. And if we don't have the gifts, we ought to say that I'm not being called to put myself into this function in the church and to use the, uh, gifts that I don't have in this way because what's going to happen is the church is going to suffer. The church is going to suffer. And I think Paul is actually writing in the context of those who have been puffed up over spiritual giftedness or thinking that their gifts were more important than other gifts. You have this in the church that it's rampant. You have a gifted individual who's talented in some particular way and they think everything needs to be about them. This is one of the things that I push against in this church. Lots of reformed churches who have men who can preach, become preaching posts, and that's all they become, and there's no life in the church, and the people aren't using their gifts, and there's no attempt to encourage people to use their gifts. And, and it seems as if as long as we have a great preacher with a PhD and lots of books, we're good, and that's what the church is supposed to be. And Paul is going to tell us in the rest of this section that <clears throat> we're part of a body. And that means that God has given every one of his people gifts. And by his grace, he has poured out his spirit on his people, and he has given different gifts to different people, and the church needs the gifts of the members of the body. And that if the church doesn't have it, the church suffers. The church will suffer when people don't use their gifts. Now, on the flip side, you have people who think, oh, I, I don't have any gifts, and I just want to be used in whatever way I can be used, and, and really what they're doing is burying their talents in the sand. And... They're actually being selfish by not thinking about how they can bless others in the church with the gifts they've given them. What Paul is calling us to do is to have a proper esteem of where we are by the grace of God, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to read to you the words of um, John Murray. He said, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts that we do not have, we have an inflated notion of our place and function, we sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are. But if we underestimate, then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. Now, I want to say this this morning. Lots of people have a difficult time discerning um, what they're called to do in the world, what, what their vocation is. What has God called me to do? Where should I be in, in vocation? Where should I be out in the world? And I think a lot of people have the same problem in the church. And so what I like to tell people when I counsel them about work and career, I like to say, what do you love to do? What are you good at doing? 
What does it seem comes natural to you? Are there things you enjoy doing? I don't think that we all end up doing jobs that we just love and find complete fulfillment in. It's a fallen world. God has a tendency to put difficulties and trials in our way at every step, in every sphere. And yet, we're to ask ourselves, what, what am I good at? What do I excel at? I think in the church, you've got to ask that same question. Are you good at calling people and encouraging them? Do you like to have people into your home? Do you like to visit people when they're sick? Do you have a burning desire to teach the people of God? What, what have others said to you? You know, I really love this about you. I love how you're always like this. I love how you always speak encouraging words. You know, are you, do you have administrative gifts? Are you a very organized person? Are you a person that likes to think ahead and look out for pitfalls? And whatever it is, God has wired you. And, you know, I tend to think the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit pours out on his people are commensurate with those natural gifts God has already given them. I think that's a very helpful way to enter into this. The spiritual gifts that Jesus Christ gives you, because they all come from him, by grace are oftentimes him taking gifts he's already given you and heightening them and amplifying them. I was probably seven years old, and I came home from school. I lived in Pensacola, Florida at the time. I came home from school one day and um, rushed in, and my dad and John Skilton, the Greek professor at Westminster Philly, were sitting down at the table, and I remember telling them everything I learned at school that day, just unloading, just dumping the back dump truck. I would just thoughtlessly, you know, dumping everything I learned at school on them that day. And my dad telling me, Nick, you know, calm down. I guess, Dad, calm down. And I'll never forget John Skilton saying to my dad, he has gifts in teaching, you need to foster them. I think that's how it works. That's generally how it works. All of you have gifts. Every one of God's people have been given gifts by God. Every one of you is necessary in the body. We're going to talk about that in service in a second. But the trick and the key is to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, not want something, some position in the body that God hasn't given you. You know, we're going to move in here in November to elder nominations at New Covenant. That means there are going to be men that God will raise up who he's gifted and qualified and will call to be elders in this church, to be pastors in this church. And I have never, ever been in a church my entire life where there has not been men who shouldn't be elders that made it to be elders in the church because they thought more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They thought, I want a position that God has not called me to have. Maybe their motives were to be seen. Maybe it was to have some supposed power or control. But it was not for the well-being of the body. It was selfish motivation, and it ended up hurting the church. And then there are other men who have evident gifts in pastoring, and people tell them, have you ever thought about eldership? And they say, oh, no, 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 I've never thought about that. And then somebody else comes in the church and they say, I really think you'd be a good elder. Have you ever thought about it? No, I don't want that. And they, they sheepishly stay away from it. And so what Paul would say to us is that we have to learn to think soberly. We need to learn to know ourselves. We need to know our strengths and our weaknesses. We need to realize where God is putting us. And we need to think properly about our own role in God's church. I want to read to you this quote I found very helpful because it's not just self-examination, but it's you examining yourself in light of the gospel, in light of who Christ is, in light of what Christ has done for you. Eric Alexander 
says, true self-esteem about which a great deal is spoken of in our modern world is not the result of some form of manipulation of our thinking, like the sort of thing that you get in the positive thinking movement where you look in the mirror in the morning and say, day by day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. And then you try believing that, and then the mirror is inclined to give you a nice raspberry. He says, true self-esteem comes from drawing near to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that again. True self-esteem comes from drawing near to the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, when we enter in on the subject and we start to say, okay, I need to examine myself and I need to think about myself in the proper way, the first thing we should think is, Christ has died for me. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 through 11. Christ has died for me. When I was an enemy of God, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Christ has made me his son or daughter. I have been adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. I am an heir of eternal life. I have the hope of everlasting life before me. The greatest thing you can know about me is that Jesus Christ has loved me and given himself for me. And that's where true self-esteem comes from. And that's where proper thinking about ourselves comes from. And when we forget that and we start to think, I'm so-and-so, they should respect me because I'm so-and-so, or I have gifts in this, they should respect me because my gifts are in this and they don't seem to want to use my gifts, then we've, we've already forgotten the proper way to think about ourselves. The totality of our lives should be Christ has redeemed me, and here's the beauty of it. That's true for every believer on the face of the earth. The greatest thing about you, if you're in Christ, is the greatest thing about me in Christ, is the greatest thing about every other believer in Christ, and it's where we find all our identity and where the proper biblical self-esteem comes and where we learn to fit in in the body to use our gifts. We have got to learn, as Eric Alexander said, to draw near to the cross of Jesus and to be able to say what I am worth is what I am worth to the God who gave the blood of his only son for my salvation, and that is a great deal. You know, I tend to think in every relationship we have, forgetting that is the root cause of all of our problems. When there are tensions in marriage, the root cause of it is I have forgotten what I am worth is what I'm worth to the God who gave the blood of his son for me. And what my spouse is worth is what she's worth because God gave the blood of his son for her. And what the person in the church I don't like so much is worth is worth the blood of the son of God to God the Father. And that the whole of the identity of the Christian community is bound up in what you are worth before God because God has sent his son to die for you. I'll remind you of that quote by Charles Spurgeon where he said, when I look at the cross... I think that the father loves me more than he loved his own son. And that is humbling. There is no room for spiritual pride there. There's no room for spiritual pride when you think what Christ has done for you. I also want to say this morning in this point, spiritual pride is the hardest thing in the world to come off of. People will live with it, consuming them. They will hear messages like this day after day after day, and they will never, ever, ever flee to the foot of the cross to get rid of it. This is the hardest thing in the world 
to get rid of spiritual pride is like Medusa's head. You cut off one, it grows right back. Pride is wounded, and it just mounts up against people. Pride is crushed at the foot of the cross. When you see what it costs God to redeem us and forgive us and cleanse us, when you see what it costs for him to give us the gifts that he gives us to use for his people, we are humbled. We are humbled. You know, that's one of the beautiful things, isn't it, about the Lord Jesus. The the only way Jesus ever described himself was I am gentle and lowly in heart. Did you know that? That's the only way. The God-man who is just in infinite power, who will say on Judgment Day, depart from me, I never knew you, to multitudes for all eternity, comes to redeem his people and he says, I am gentle, I am lowly in heart. This is why Paul could say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it a thing to hold on to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Beloved, if Jesus Christ could make himself of no reputation, can I not make myself of no reputation? If God over all could empty himself in his, in his demeanor and his character and, and become the meekest and most lowly and most humble of all men on the face of the earth, Can I not, who am but sinful dust, humble myself under the mighty hand of God and think soberly as I ought to think about myself? Secondly, Paul tells us and calls us to gospel service. And you can see how these things go together. Notice that once we begin thinking soberly about ourselves, we start to think, how can I use my gifts to serve others? We don't think about our own desires or prerogatives. We don't think about our own wants. We start to think about the needs of the church. You know, I cannot tell you how many times over the last 15 years I've, I've heard people in this church, in every church I've ever been a part of, talk about what's wrong with the church and how few times I hear, you know, we really have a need here I think I'm going to try to meet that need. Or so-and-so might be a good fit for that. And I'll tell you this, when I hear it, and I do hear it in this church, when I hear people say, you know, so-and-so would really be a good fit for this, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world because you see the body thinking about itself. You see the body thinking about the needs of the body. And that's the point, right? Paul finds this great illustration about the body, and he uses it everywhere. That's that's a mark of a good preacher. He finds one good illustration and uses it constantly. And when we start to think that we are members of the same body, and that the body has needs, and that the different members all serve those needs, we are going to seek to fulfill our role in the church. Here's one of the beautiful things about this. Paul actually starts... All the application in the book of Romans by saying all of the Christian life begins in the church in which you are. All of it begins there. Not in parachurch ministries, not out with other believers. All those things are fine. They all have their place. But Paul says it begins in the body of which you have become a member. God has called you to use your gifts and to serve and to do it diligently. Notice the way that the apostle tells us. He says, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, members of one another, having gifts that differ 
according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who gives in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I think there's a word here. Paul's not saying that we just go and then we serve begrudgingly. There's another danger. There's a danger for people to begrudgingly use their gifts. Well, I've got to do this because, you know, Nick's up there telling us this, and I feel bad now, so I need to do this. And, and Paul would say, no. He who preaches, using the gift in the proportion of the faith God has given him, he who teaches, he who gives, generously and cheerfully and diligently serving and using all those gifts. Now, there's two things in this set of lists. Really, everything in the church and service in the church falls under one of these two umbrellas. Either spiritual gifts that that benefit others spiritually or gifts that benefit the body in their physical needs. Look, if you categorized all of those things, you would see that really what you have is the gifts of elders and deacons. That's the easiest way to put it. Jesus Christ is Savior of soul and body. And so when the one who in himself has everything necessary for soul and body, distributes gifts to his people, he does so under those two categories. And every need of the church, every need in the church, can be summed up in those two spheres. Either the spiritual well-being of the people that we are united to, or the physical well-being of those people. And so you have to ask yourself, has God given me gifts in teaching? Has God given me gifts in exhortation? Or has God given me gifts in mercy and administration and do, do I like to think about the needs of others physically? Do I like to help prepare meals? You know, um, one of the beautiful things about New Covenant is that we have committees and ministry teams that meet all of these different things. And we have people that serve in those. And we encourage everybody in the church to get involved in that. And we encourage everybody to play a part and everyone to think about how to benefit the body. And, you know, there's nothing sweeter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put her on the spot this morning. There's nothing sweeter than when Donna Walters tells me I've got everything under control for a meal. And I haven't even talked through any details. And I don't even know all the details. And Donna has already gotten everything together and organized everything. And that's how it works in the body. We play our parts. We fulfill our roles. We serve in the capacities we can serve. And here's what happens. When that goes on, the church prospers. The church prospers. You know, when we start to think soberly about ourselves and our gifts, when we start to take all of our spiritual pride to the foot of the cross, when we start to realize that all that we are, we are because of Christ, and all that we have, we have because of his grace, when we start to realize that whatever gifts we have, God has given us so that we use them to minister to people in the body, when we start to see the needs of others and we start to say, how can I serve others rather than how can I be served? When we start to think, how can I serve even if nobody sees me? That's the trick. How can I serve without anyone saying, thank you, and me saying, nobody thank me for doing this? Because the second we start to think, you know, I did this and no one thanked me, is the second that spiritual pride is manifesting itself in our hearts. The second that we start to think, I wonder who saw what I did, is the second that we have missed everything that Paul has said in this section. I want to read to you as we close our time together this morning what Edward said again. 
Spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. Spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. And now I want to read the conclusion to you. Eric Alexander said, True self-esteem comes from drawing near to the cross of Jesus Christ and being able to say, What I am worth is what I am worth to the God who gave the blood of his only son for my salvation. And that is a great deal. Now that's where true self-esteem is born. As you go from this place this morning, my desire is that you would be examining your heart. You'd be saying, what are my motives? When I think about my gifts and I think about others and I, I, I see others in the church serving, how do I view them? Do I view them with bitterness and envy? Do I view myself as more important than people in the body? Do I think that I know better than others? And even if I don't express that verbally, I think in my mind, I don't like how they're doing this and I would do this this way. Or do we think about ourselves as those who have been bought by the blood of the Son of God? Do we think, how can I use the gifts that God has given me? Do we think, how can I better the body of which I've been brought into? Do we think about the other members of the body and say, how can I care for them? How can I serve them? How can I pour out my life for them? Because Christ has poured out his life for me. Isn't that it? That's it. The Lord Jesus Christ poured out his life and he poured out his blood into death for us. How can we not pour out our life in humility and service to those he has united us with as a worshiping and witnessing community? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us that sweet grace of humility We pray that you would give us sober-mindedness about ourselves. We pray that the mind of Christ would be in us, who though he could have demanded from every man and woman and child that he ever met homage and all of their possessions and respect, was led as a lamb without blemish and without spot, and who was silent when he was accused and who made himself of no reputation and took the form of a slave and who laid down his life for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grant us that same mind, that you would grant us grace to see our place in the body and how we might serve your people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please give us more grace and give us that mind this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.